Lieutenant Commander Data was created by a human. Do we deny that? No. Again, it is not relevant. Children are created from the building blocks of their parents' DNA. Are they property? I call Lieutenant Commander Data to the stand. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton watching Cam follow me up in line. (laughs) And this week, we're going to talk about following up on greatness in Star Trek episodes. But before that... I think we have some pretty exciting news to delve into, Tyler, with First Contact Day, just uh, you know, a couple days before we recorded this episode. Yeah, it was fascinating sort of watching it all unfold this week. Uh, let's, let's just kick it off, Cam. If you don't want spoilers, then I don't know why you're listening to our show right now, but it's really not going to be anything that I think will ruin anyone's seasons. It's all out there in the public. But one, two, three, Q will be returning in Star Trek Picard. Uh, we kind of thought this would be the case, did we not, Kim? Would we have been disappointed to find out that there would be no Q in Season 2 of Star Trek Picard? Oh, sorry, I, I actually left because I didn't want to hear spoilers, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... Actually, the, key- <laughs> the podcast has never been better in those uh, five seconds. <laughs> That's a clip for the highlight reel at the end of the year. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. this was the sort of thing you and I definitely talked a lot about. Would Q be back? Um, there was rumors. I remember there was a video that hit the online uh, world, you know, of potentially teasing a Q cameo that nothing ever came of that footage. But um, it seemed, and that would have been in season one, Picard, but it seems like, yes, we're finally going to get Q. I'm excited. It was pretty inevitable, but I got to say, I, you know, my opinions on Picard season one have been, well, they've been exhausted at this point in the podcast. And, you know, in the revisit, we found things to enjoy about it. But it was a show that when it wrapped up that season one, I was like, okay, like, I don't, I'm not excited about a season two. It doesn't mean I won't watch it. Doesn't mean I won't give it, you know, a fresh look, but just that at the end of season one, there was no real excitement about a season two. Well, they pulled me back in, damn it. And all it took was John Delancey doing voiceover. <laughs> Yeah, look, we've got like Whoopi Goldberg coming back as Guinan, John Delancey returning as Q. I, th- I think these are very big cornerstones of Picard's journey, existential journey. We're now dealing with Gollum Picard, which I think kind of takes away from that. But I, I hope they address that throughout the season that we're not actually dealing with Picard anymore. We're dealing with a robot with Picard's programmed memories, which I don't believe is his consciousness. I wonder if they can help address that, though, with Q. Like, I, I think it would totally crap all over the season finale if Q just said, you know what, Picard, you're flesh and bone as of now. But guess what? I, Other than the data farewell sequence, I, I'm happy if they just kind of extinguish the finale from my memory. So I, they- I wonder if there's some way that they can kind of fix things. But, but, but Cam, what were you going to say there? Well, I wonder, too, if there's something interesting to delve into, the idea of Picard being the defender of humanity when he's not a member of the human species anymore. I think there could be something interesting there. But it's not Picard. Like, that's like Picard is dead. This is why I have a fundamental problem with this show moving forward. It is Jean-Luc Picard, as we've known him for, oh, my God, like almost 35 years at this point. He's Hmm. dead. So we have a robot with his memories walking around. Can he be the defender of humanity? Maybe. I, I Sure. You know, it, it, who is Q talking to, though, really? Like, I, I, I'm not for one moment going to buy that Q is talking to Picard's consciousness. That man is gone, you know? And, and I don't think it's just my opinion. I think definitively that man is gone. And so that's why I... 
I think if the series tries to convince me otherwise, I just think it just rings completely false. Do you think the writers know that they put themselves in this sort of place with that creative decision? Or do you think in their minds they were going, well, it's a change, but it's still Picard? I think the writers have a tendency to pat themselves on the back no matter what. I think the writers believe that they are geniuses just based on the interviews that I've seen that, you know, uh, Cam, you watch special features. You got the sense from that Picard season one Blu-ray set that the writers really do think that they are just magnificent. So uh, no, I, I don't think they believe that they've written themselves into a corner here. They have a new showrunner, or at least a co-showrunner. Uh, maybe this fella can... Uh, maybe it's good that they have this outside influence who wasn't tainted by this investment and in what was going on in the first season. Maybe he can really kind of give them, you know, uh, a splash of cold water to the face. I don't know. What about you? I mean, when they're calling Bejazel the villain of all villains, then it does raise concerns with me about, well, I don't know where, where Q stands in the world of antagonists now, if, <laughs> but, but Jazel's the all-timer. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know. Like, I think they seem very content with um, the continuation of a very, very fairly profound genre story. And that uh, there's a difference to me be with being confident in your abilities and tackling material, but also being, you know, like, I hope this works because I think what we're dealing with is, you know, many years of legacy and we want this to deliver versus boy, have we done it guys. We have just done it again. Aren't we awesome? That's the sort of thing that concerns me. Like I, I want them to be a little more humble and be like, we did our best. We hope the fans enjoy it. Like that's the sort of attitude. I think most creators, and I'm not just talking about Star Trek, I'm talking in general, you don't hear a lot of filmmakers on red carpets being like, I've made a masterpiece and I just think everyone is going to love everything I've done. You just don't hear people say things like that. It's very weird. You're stealing Steven Spielberg's words right out of his mouth, right? I know, straight from the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull press conference. <laughs> well, look, I, I forget if I said this to you off mic or if I, I, I've shared my thoughts or articulated these particular thoughts on the show before. But I think the thing is with Picard and Discovery that rubs me the wrong way, though, is the storytelling is very pretentious. You really get the sense that they think very, very highly of themselves in terms of how they do the storytelling. Whereas I'm going through my Deep Space Nine rewatch, and the show is excellent, but it's very unpretentious storytelling. It's very straightforward. You get from point A to point B, you understand the motivations of the characters, and it's not as if they have to have this swelling music every 10 seconds to tell you how significant and magnificent and majestic they are. And that's, I, I, I just don't know if Star Trek Picard has quite come down to earth at this point. And I hope maybe Q can um, give uh, Jean-Luc a, a splash of reality. I, 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 it'll be great to see him again. We got him for just, what, like a total of five seconds in um, yeah, Star Trek Lower Decks uh, last season. So I, I like that John Delancey is now enmeshed in the Kurtzman era. I'll, I'll, I'll take it at the moment. I do think there's something iffy, though, about the fact this is Star Trek Picard season two. Again, Picard. This is a show about Picard. And I'm the most excited just about seeing Guinan in a queue. I don't really, I, I'm not emotionally invested in the continuing adventures of Golem Picard. Isn't that kind of damning uh, of, of the series itself? It, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So um, who would you rather see, uh, Dr. Beverly Crusher or Q, if he could only pick one to return in season two? I think Q. I think that's the one that's more interesting to me because Crusher, so much of the relationship with Crusher is with Jean-Luc. And we have Golem Picard now. So I feel like there's something there that's going to be a little more missing. Whereas like Q brings that omnipotent being energy. I like. I would like to see him bounce off the other cast members I just think there's more room to do something with Q than maybe Beverly Crusher at this point. I think story-wise, yeah. yeah. You, you know, like, I, I agree with you. And story-wise, I think there are more opportunities with Q. I'll be bummed out if I don't see Beverly, you know, this season. And maybe they're just saving her for season three. Who knows? But I, it sounds as if, you know, more familiar faces are coming back. 
But how much of a sign of confidence is that if they are, you know, kind of tapping the old pros, you know, every second episode? Well, yeah, no kidding. I, I'm very curious to see um, how much they work in established characters because we, yeah, Q and Guinan are the two that seem to be, well, Q confirmed, Guinan heavily, heavily rumored. Um, uh, but, no, uh, she, she's, it, she's confirmed. She is confirmed. Much. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if there was an official notice yet or if did just, you know, the view footage with uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Stewart, but okay. I think um, Kurtzman has said that she had, she is coming back for sure. Cool. So I, do you think they work in another crew member? Like, because they didn't like, um, I guess they did actually advertise Riker and Troy, but do you think they will work in a Crusher, a Geordi, a Worf somewhere in this season? I don't know about Crusher. I feel very, very confident that Worf or Geordi will reappear. And is Worf going to get the um, Laurel makeup treatment? Let's find out. <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, so Cam, look, uh, I, I think the other big news, we got the, uh, the drop of the Star Trek Discovery season four kind of teaser. There really aren't any VFX to speak of. It's, they're still just doing the principal photography at this point over in Toronto. Um, I am, uh, very fearful of season four. <laughs> I, they, they don't seem to have learned any of the lessons from season three, which I found to be a, a, a huge disappointment after I was so excited to see what they had in store by flinging them into the 30th century. I think that the show had been building up into something interesting over the first two seasons and they just kind of blew it. And I think they are falling back yet again on the storyline for the year is going to be it's the end of the universe. But in this situation, Cam, it's a gravitational anomaly. I I cringed watching this teaser. And I, this is, I think, the first time I've watched a Star Trek teaser for a season and actually been like, uh-oh. Usually, you know, there'll be a bit where you're like, okay, that was kind of weird, but boy, am I excited about this part or that part. With this one, I just went, oh no, oh no, they're going to do the burn part two. It seems like they're really putting it on front street, just the way they did with the Red Angel and the Burn in marketing the previous seasons. And oh, I, I just I don't understand, even from a creative standpoint, why you would do that immediately after the Burn. So I'm hoping there's a swerve coming, and this is just something they're putting in marketing, and we're going in a completely different direction because otherwise, it seems like really creatively bankrupt to do that. Well, well, Cam, it's a bit of a spoiler, but that gravitational anomaly, they've actually named it the Swerve. <laughs> Might as well. So you're right. The Swerve is coming, Cam. <laughs> I, I just can't wait to hear them talk about the Swerve, the Swerve all season long. I don't It's just you, you mentioned the creative creativity. Like it, it's just kind of like you're just doing the same thing again and again. And guess what? We all know that, you know, Burnham and company, there might be some sacrifices along the way, but they'll ultimately succeed. Right. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it is a swerve in terms of marketing. Maybe there's something entirely different waiting in store. But even from a marketing standpoint, why would you market the same thing again? It's very strange. Uh. And there's not even any Lenny Kravitz music to listen to this time. <laughs> Damn it all! <laughs> I just would it Amer would American Woman the the uh, the cover of the Guess Who song would that have been like the best uh, you know gravitational swerve anomaly sort of uh, music to get us pumped? I don't know. When I was watching this trailer, all I was thinking was, when are things going to go my way? <laughs> <laughs> Cam, get away from me. Yeah, it's just, it's frustrating because I want to get back on board with Discovery after season three, you know, having enjoyed the first two seasons. I like the new uniforms, I could say that much, but um, yeah, in terms of what they're marketing story-wise, it was uh, very disappointing. Did you not notice, though, on the Facebook groups, nobody was talking about the contents of the trailer save for the uniforms? Like, all the discussion centered on the uniforms, not, you know, the potential of the swerve. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, um, it's yeah. kind of like with the um, posts about the Picard uh, teaser. No one was like, what's Elnor up to? 
<laughs> yeah, wow. Um, yeah, with regards to uniform, though, look, I like the bold colors. I still think those uniforms are a little baggy, although I think that the ones that they were wearing the first three seasons are, like, way too tight. I would not be comfortable as an actor. I just don't know how form-fitting these are. I think the best uniforms, if uh, you just want to be comfortable, would be the TNG ones or else the, uh, the Deep Space Nine kind of jumpsuits, you know, so... Um, I, it's funny, though, because uh, Gersha Phillips, she was doing interviews on First Contact Day. She is the costume designer for Star Trek Discovery. She said uh, they realized very quickly that the um, gray uniforms match the walls, and so that's why they had to uh, swerve into a different kind of uniform. I mean, they sucked, right? They, uh, You know, when I saw them at, you know, kind of Starfleet headquarters, they, I thought they were fine. But when I saw our crew, who we're so familiar with, in them in the finale, I was like, this does not look great. Like, I don't know, is it just familiarity with how I expect the characters to look week to week? Or is it just, was there something fundamental about those uniforms? I think there was something wrong with them. I mean, I think it was that gray kind of flat look. Um it was kind of like wandering into the motion picture where you're like, look, I, I, you know, there's elements of the motion picture uniforms we can appreciate like the um, Admiral's outfit, for example, but it ain't a great look. It's not what you want to see when you walk on the bridge of a starship. And that was the case with these ones too. Uh, I, I can't wait to see like the one or two fans at the conventions that made those gray uniforms before seeing the trailer and they're kind of stuck you know, wearing the gray uniforms for a couple cycles. These will be the most short-lived crew uniforms of all time. That's the best part. <laughs> well, yeah, for any of the series, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I would say the motion picture probably has, you know, mm -hmm. the, the trophy when it comes to short-lived, just in terms of minutes on screen. The movie itself is not short-lived. <laughs> No, no, that's true. <laughs> um, Camp, so other news going on. Uh, look, it's been confirmed that one Star Trek Lower Decks coming back in August, which is the same time that it premiered last year. And that'll be followed by Discovery, uh, presumably in the fall of 2021, based on what we heard. And then they confirmed Picard in 2022. No word on Strange New Worlds. But Cam, this, this kind of seems to confirm what we were speculating on like the last couple of weeks about what the release schedule is going to be so how does it feel to be smart oh so wonderful so wonderful and yeah. um i gotta say that lower decks preview that they dropped too boy did that have me excited that was the most exciting teaser we got out of this whole thing not watching a queen card dissolve into the letter q in star trek picard Look, I'm not going to ever speak ill of John Delancey's cackling in a trailer. It was very effective. But the Lower Decks one with uh, Riker on the bridge stuff, like that was comedic gold. I, I, I'm really looking forward to Star Trek Lower Decks. It's the series I have the most faith in at this point. It's been confirmed for season three as well. So I'm super pumped about that. I, I, I can't wait. I just hope we get that uh, Eagle Moss line of ships coming soon. Mm, yeah good call good call are you gonna get the new picard one they're putting out uh i am going to get the um the card that uh, q dissolves into right you know <laughs> that that'll be my new eagle moss purchase very nice <laughs> yeah yeah um lastly we we got uh, some more information on star trek prodigy the children's animated series and we kind of figured out that it's going to be one captain janeway not admiral janeway but she's going to be aboard as like a hologram with this misfit crew of young whippersnappers. It's presumably taking place in the Delta Quadrant. I guess the kids found an errant sort of Starfleet festival, vessel in the Delta Quadrant, and Janeway is there as kind of the uh, the guiding force as a hologram. Um, I can dig it. I, I like to me. There's I, I don't have the same issue with this representation of Janeway as I do with Gollum Picard. It's going to be fun to have Mulgrew's voice back there. Um, she's going to have that, you know, very uh, iconic bun that she had in the early seasons. I, I'm excited for Star Trek Prodigy. I don't know if we'll be doing weekly reviews, but we'll definitely do, I think, like clusters of reviews like every couple of weeks when it premieres. Yeah, I think this is a fun way to approach it because it allows them to give the audience the Janeway they all kind of know and love. You know, being the captain, having this hologram, it's kind of like that... Janeway concept stuck in amber that we all know and love, but that also allows them to then 
do whatever they want to do with, you know, Admiral Janeway later on down the road. So maybe in live action, what I would like to see at some point, hopefully on Picard or something like that. Um, but I think this just sounds fun. Um, and plus you have that episode, The Good Shepherd of Voyager, where you saw Janeway, you know, um, basically mentoring, uh, I think it was three crew members who were kind of problem crew members. I think that sort of dynamic can work very well for a kid's show. And uh, Kate Mulgrew has a voice that was made for animation as well. So this should be pretty effective. So folks, I guess news dropped just the day after we recorded that last segment. That's, well, Star Trek, the next, what, the 14th film cam? It will be released, apparently, June 9th, 2023. And I honestly think that this is meaningless news. Uh, what about you, Cam? What, what's your hot take here? Well, Tyler, um, I think the real news is that hell has frozen over and that we have a release date for a new Star Trek film. <laughs> I uh, Fair enough. I, at least they are getting a, a bit of a kick in the pants. If Paramount wants to lock down that date, tell other people that we have that slot, you can't have it, then sure, good on them. I don't necessarily... Th- think that Star Trek is uh, like a big summer franchise. I I think it would work better in, say, fall Christmas. I I think the Star Trek Beyond release kind of confirmed that as well, where it underperformed at the box office. Um, And it's very unclear what this film is going to be. We had that Clinda Vasquez script that was given the green light last month. I don't think you know, the execs look at like maybe the 20 pages of a first draft that they, she delivers and says, yep, we're moving forward with that. I think they just want to lock down a date and they've probably got like four scripts that they would consider to begin filming, I guess, you know, early to mid 2022. Yeah, it's like so often with franchise filmmaking now, you know, if you get look at these um, upcoming slates, it'll be like untitled Disney movie, untitled Marvel movie, uh, untitled DC movie. And uh, there's often flexibility too. I mean, uh, look, I want this Star Trek movie to happen. It's been too long since we had a Star Trek movie, but I wouldn't necessarily be shocked if it didn't happen on the date they've announced, you know, recently. Yeah, I think it's really just about Paramount locking down a specific date so that competitors stay away. Um, Cam, look, I think we can get into this uh, discussion about kind of the state of the film franchise uh, later on. Uh, Why don't we go on over to our broader discussion for this week's episode? Okay, well, that was big news that uh, jumped out this past week. Uh, Why don't we jump over to the topic? And we're we're talking about following up on greatness. We, We touched on this last week, Cam, and like, if you've got this exquisite episode of Star Trek, is it just kind of a loser's game trying to follow it up the next week? If you Mm. have, you know, something like The Inner Light, how do you follow that up, you know? Like, uh, is it just, like, kind of a... uh, You're just going to stumble afterwards? Like, I think there are some examples of where Star Trek actually did follow up quite competently, and other times where, like, eh, yeah, they did kind of fall flat on their faces here. And I think we could kind of discuss what works, what doesn't work, and this will be kind of a fun discussion here. Yeah, I think this is going to be really fun. So where should we start? Well, you know what? Uh, I, I will read a passage from Star Trek Deep Space Nine Companion. I touched on this last week, but um, uh, why don't we jump from uh, You Are Cordially Invited into resurrection and of course this is following up with you know the war arc the dominion war arc on deep space nine those first six episodes you follow it up with the wedding of jenzia and Worf. the show is just on an absolute tear and then you have mir barail come and visit kira in the bajoran temple and here's a quote from one iris stephen bear I knew we were going to get smacked for whatever show we came up with after the war arc and the wedding episode, says Ira Bear. People were going to say, this is what you're doing next? It's that feeling of letdown after you've done something big. It was bad timing, and it probably shouldn't have been a relationship show, but I felt we needed one for Kira. And actually, I think it was one of our better romantic shows. (laughs) What? Yes. What? That's insane. (laughs) Yes. So look, I, 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 I can feel for them. They knew it was going to be a bit of a stinker. I don't think they thought it was going to be this much of a stinker. But look, Resurrection is not a great episode. And like, if you are like just running on kind of like juiced up steroids of storytelling through those first seven episodes of the season, uh, maybe minus sons and daughters, which I don't know if that's the strongest one. But mm. um, 
this is not how you really follow up greatness, is it, Cam? Uh, I would say no. Uh, <laughs> it's just like the Dominion War was such, you know, I mean, that's just such a riveting um, series of episodes. And then You Are Cordially Invited is sort of the, in some ways, almost like the epilogue, kind of the breather after that. I think you need to get back to maybe business as usual on the show. Um, I don't oh, yeah, know that to... Quark episode is great. Sure, sure. But like an episode just grounded in the station, you know, establishing just the world of the station that week. I don't know that resurrection is the way I would have done that. Do you think it's a fundamentally flawed episode concept, you know, bringing Brile back from the Mirror universe? Or do you think it was just executed poorly that week? I don't think it's ever a fundamentally flawed premise to bring back Fedek Brile, Tyler. True. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh... true. <laughs> Okay, I always struggled a little bit when it came with some of these DS9 decisions with the Mirror Universe and that a character they would bring back wasn't an exciting choice. You know, you have Jennifer Sisko, and I think I may touch on that one a little later, but, uh, you know, you have her coming back. Like, is that riveting? Not really. Is Vedic Baral coming back riveting? For us, yes. But for the majority of viewers, no, it's not. Like, it's not particularly exciting. So... That's why I say I just think they should have found a really solid, you know, station-based episode and let that story work. It may not be a highlight, but it would set you back into kind of the world of the DS9 station after that very um, tumultuous arc. I think they could have made it work. Just they should have made this a swashbuckling adventure in which Mir Barail comes back and Kira is conflicted as opposed to making it like a romantic episode that we're not invested in. Um, and also... If we're talking about dead Bajoran religious leaders, why can't you bring Kai Opaka back for this? Yeah, no kidding. And how did we never get a Mirror Universe Kai win? That could have been really great. Uh, she's just the coolest person of all, right? Yeah, like make her a saint that everyone loves, like the great leader. <laughs> you know, I think that could that be she cool. always wanted to be. Yes, exactly. And then you could even have the two of them meet. Oh my God, what an episode! A Louise Fletcher showcase episode. Instead of going around saying, hello, my child, she goes around saying, hello, my mom. <laughs> All righty, Cam, what's uh, what's on your list here? And the episode could be called So Much Win. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a win. <laughs> okay, uh, let's do another DS9 one, actually. I think it's interesting to talk about. And that is Trials and Tribulations. Obviously, a hugely expensive episode. One of the greatest episodes of DS9, technically brilliant, and they decide to follow it up with "Let He Who Is Without Sin." <laughs> the trip. Yeah, my notes. Mm -hmm. my, my notes. They just say "oof." Okay, like there's a couple reasons I don't get this. One, well, you know, obviously the script for "Let He With Who Without Sin" is pretty bad, but um, uh, uh, even on top of that, tonally, it's kind of like going from a light comedic episode to a light comedic episode like i think they probably should have gone to something a little more ds9 toned versus this coming off of tribbles which is kind of like trying to carry like there's a lot of whimsy in tribbles and it's done impeccably and then you carry it over to another episode trying to do whimsical stuff and it doesn't work at all i'll, I'll let you know what the other big big problem with this episode though was is, is like they knew that they were going to be coming off like just monster ratings like they invested so much of their budget into the preceding episode why are you doing like this weird Riza episode like they had to know fundamentally that this one isn't representative of the series as you said and if they can bank all this goodwill and figure that a lot of people are going to tune in the following week after watching trials this is just like a bad move like follow it up with something even if it's like a dark episode, like the one where, you know, it's Kira's birthday and Dukat says, yo, I slept with your mama. Like, <laughs> like at least that is kind of like the, the Deep Space Nine kind of flavor, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a very bizarre choice. I just, I get it. You have a dud episode in your season and you kind of want to bury it. But the proximity here is damning because it's actually placing it right next to an episode that you could compare it against. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know like you want to put this one let he who's without sin should have been next to that uh you know i i can't remember i don't think it matches up season wise but next to an episode that's very dark and kind of depressing you know you referenced that one with um you know kira and dukat and the mom revelations like 
maybe not that dark, but an episode like an Empok Nor or something like that, like an episode that's kind of edgier and you go, okay, now we're bouncing, we're bouncing to a lighter episode next week. Yeah. It's kind of crappy, but it tonally, at least it's a bit of a relief from what we just dealt with. I, I'm reaching into my memory banks. I believe that Kira flashback kind of time travel episode was wrongs darker than death or night, which mm-hmm. that is just the perfect way to encapsulate the mood of your episode there in a title. Cam, did that one make it into our best episode titles ever? I don't think, I don't it, think did. it did. No. Yeah. Well, I regret that. <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm going to jump over to kind of a series of episodes in which I actually think that they kind of stuck the landing here in which you, you have a great episode and you kind of have to follow it up with something profound. And you're capping off the best of both worlds two-parter in which, you know, Picard is assimilated, released from the collective. What do you do next? Well, originally, they had written a script for Brothers. They had filmed it. This is the one in which, of course, Data meets up with Dr. Sung as well as Lore. And they were just talking. They're like, how are we not addressing, you know, Picard being assimilated? You know, like, does he just get over it over one week? No, that's just super unrealistic despite our predilection towards you know episodic storytelling so they go ahead with family picard goes back to the vineyard we meet the rojenkos as well aboard the ship cam this is how you follow up greatness like you are giving us human stakes within it we actually see a a picard who's vulnerable in a way he's never been before and he look i will never say no to mud wrestling with one patrick stewart (laughs) well you remember when we talked about the mckee in how the um, Balana episode Extreme Measures, where she's doing all the extreme sports stuff, uh, comes like a handful of episodes after the revelation that all the McKee have been wiped out. So there you get that disconnect between the cause of this trauma and then the symptoms of it. Here, we actually get to see that because these episodes are, you know, one following the other. We, we get to see Picard go through the trauma of being Lacutus and then going back to this quiet episode and becoming human again with his, you know, tumultuous relationship with his brother. Like, it's really genius organization of a season. Wouldn't it have just felt like a cheat if they went directly from Best of Both Worlds Part 2 right into Brothers? Yeah, I think so. Because then you're just hurling off into a whole other direction. And I mean, like, Brothers is a good episode. I have nothing against it whatsoever. But it would almost feel like a distraction. It's like, you could easily sit there and be like, well, hey, like, is Picard okay? No, no, don't worry about that. We got Dr. Soon. We got Lore. Here, you're actually dealing with what Picard went through, you know, not necessarily the most serialized way. Like nowadays, you would make the episode family even more serialized than it is here, but it doesn't matter. You still carry it just by proximity to that episode. You carry a lot of um, serialized storytelling over yourself just watching that episode family. Do you think that they could have called this episode Brothers as well? Yeah, they easily could have. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you have, you know, brothers, family. (laughs) The next episode, it was the Beverly Crusher uh, one, uh, Remember Me. Or no, wait, was it Suddenly Human? I I forget. But I don't know. Either way, uh, maybe they should have called it like Sons and Daughters or something like that. I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, Well, uh, (laughs) what's up next for you, sir? So I have another good one and that... We've talked a lot about matching tones or conversely going in the opposite direction of the uh, setup episode. Looking at the original series, Balance of Terror, which is a fantastic, you know, sort of a nod to World War II submarine stories. And you follow that up with Shore Leave, which is that more lighthearted, goofy episode. I think this is a really strong match because Balance of Terror is a very heavy episode. It ends with Kirk exhausted, just walking, you know, around the, the, um, you know, the hallways of the Enterprise. And then we cut to the next episode, which is them on vacation. It actually makes a lot of sense that these characters would be looking for shore leave after a situation like this. And let's remember, there's no serialization in the original series, really. And also, just the concept of shore leave is very tied to, you know, military and we had Balance of Terror, which was very military. So it feels like those two episodes really do belong together. I, I wonder, though, like what the production order of things were. And I, I'm sure there are fans that could, you know, tell us right now. But I, I, I think it's entirely possible that maybe this one was in the can already. And coming off of Balance of Terror, they just kind of switched things around and had Shirley come directly afterwards just to kind of give the audience a bit of that, you know, relief that I, I think one Kirk needed after Balance of Terror. 
it's surprising to see in a 1960s episode. Like you can totally see them doing that on DS9 or Voyager, one of these later um, Star Trek series. It's just, I don't know how much thought was put into the ordering of those episodes in the 60s, but it feels almost intentional. I, it's fascinating to me how easily Star Trek seemed to glide from, you know, tone to tone every single week or even genre to genre. We, we saw that in Star Trek Picard, like their attempts to do that, in which we have an episode like Stardust City Reg, in which they try to glide from like torture porn into like this whimsical caper, and it just doesn't work. And I wonder if you just need to commit yourself you know, for a full episode, like this is the tone that we want to strike. We can't really mix it up too much or else it's just going to be way too disconcerting towards viewers. Yeah, I think that is a part of it. I think Star Trek is always one of its great strengths is that you don't know what you're going to get week to week. But unfortunately, in the new era of Star Trek, we do know what we're going to get week to week. And so you don't get these shifts in tone episode to episode, which leaves that sort of breathing room. It is sure leave the champion for longest fight scene ever cam it might be i uh, the uh the fight in um trouble with tribbles is pretty long too so i don't think it's as long as the one with uh between kirk and finnegan though like that kirk finnegan one lasts like eight minutes right it feels like it like have you ever seen the movie they live the john carpenter film i have not no okay there's like a fist fight in that between um roddy piper and keith david um that lasts forever it's like the longest fight scene it feels like put to film that's what the one with finnegan feels like in my mind have you ever seen the john carpenter movie the thing i have of course yeah i I just wanted to ask that's a pretty good movie yeah it is awesome movie there you go (laughs) it's actually uh better than than uh, they live so there you go watch the thing over they live people all right well cam i'm gonna follow this up let's let's mosey on over to star trek voyager You've got one of your favorite episodes and one of my favorite episodes, A Blink of an Eye. Uh, Cam, do you know off the top of your head uh, which one they followed up with? Oh, believe me. I have this one written down. <laughs> Virtuoso, you're one of your favorite episodes of the entire run. Not just a Voyager, of all of Star Trek. <laughs> this is the episode that made me hate the Doctor. This is, like, the Doctor was my favorite character for, like, five and a half seasons. And then we get to Virtuoso in which he decides he's going to abandon Voyager to pursue a career in opera on an alien planet. (laughs) And I'm just like, to me, it was such a betrayal of the character. And I'm like, you're coming off one of the most high concept episodes of Star Trek we've ever had. And it was executed to a T in Blink of an Eye in which Voyager gets to observe the rapid, rapid development of a civilization over the course of maybe, what, like uh, 36 hours? And they see thousands of years pass by. And then you get to Virtuoso the following week. I, I, I don't even know if they're trying to strike... What, what is the tone that they're trying to strike here? Like, um, are they going for humor? Like, is it about like a character study of the doctor because it just reveals he's a complete narcissist does it not well i would i feel like it's going from a story-based episode to a character-based episode so that kind of makes sense to me it's just i think it's entirely the choice of the episode i think the doctor wanting to become an opera singer feels too trivial in comparison to what blink of an eye did like you could easily do another type of doctor episode that is you know a little lighter but this one is just ill-fitting with the grandeur that's displayed in Blink of an Eye. I just think, like, the Doctor had so many great moments of Blink of an Eye in, in which he gets to go down to that alien planet and he might be, you know, gone from Voyager for about 15 minutes, but he's lived, what, like 100 years down on the planet? It's kind of fascinating to get his perspective. That is... And then, and then you jump over the next week and he's just being like a total jerk. And I'm just like, Ugh. I, I wonder if Virtuoso would have benefited, though, had it aired just a week before Blink of an Eye could have rehabilitated the Doctor a little bit. Yeah, no kidding. I wonder if they knew what they had with Blink of an Eye, because that is my favorite episode of Voyager, most likely, I think. But um, uh, I just wonder if they were like, well, you know, just another high concept Star Trek episode without realizing just how fantastic it was uh, if they were the um the writers of uh star trek picard 
they would have known they'd written genius, but maybe they didn't think so. And they needed, they knew the doctor was a character that people loved. And maybe they thought, well, after that one, we should really have a beloved character centric episode. And we got virtuoso. Is it a coincidence that your favorite episode of Voyager aired back to back with my favorite episode of Voyager? It seems to be. It's what brought us together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's up next for you, Cam? Okay. Imagine you're a Star Trek viewer in like 1990. You've suffered through the first season of TNG. You're annoyed. You're like, come on, I want to see Star Trek back. And this is what I, this is what I'm being given. And then you get to, you know, season two and you're like, oh my God, it's more of the same. Where's Crusher? Now I got Pulaski. And then measure of a man hits and you realize there is greatness in this new Star Trek. You could have the second coming of the wonders you experienced in TOS. And you're like, okay, I've this is it. What is going to come next week? We've got the Dauphin. <laughs> I, I don't see what the problem... Oh, yeah, yeah, you're following up greatness with greatness. I get it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're back to, you know, like a kind of dippy Wesley Crusher episode and a love interest that turns into a monster. You're seeing Worf tossed around by an unconvincing-looking Sasquatch creature. Um, Boy, this would be real whiplash coming off of the grandeur of Measure of a Man, which is, again, really, I think, one of the great examples of the more philosophical approach to Star Trek TNG wanted to be. And then the Dauphin. <laughs> Could you imagine watching Measure of a Man and then, you know, the next day you're telling all your friends, look, I know you're not on board with, you know, Next Generation. It's not as great as the original series, but it's getting there. They, they just had this amazing episode. I swear, they figured it out. Fellas, tune in next week and you get the Defon. Yeah, and then you're apologizing to your friends. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, you don't understand. The last episode was so great. Uh, you know, when it's in reruns, I'll show you. <laughs> uh, how come uh, we haven't seen anybody dress up as the Defon monster uh, at any of the conventions, sir? It would be expensive. Like you, you see those costumes that people put together that take, you know, incredible amounts of time and effort and it would have to be someone like that. And maybe they just don't feel like committing that much money and time to, you know, being the monster from the Dauphin. <laughs> it's either that or, you know, I, I just picture that woman that had that amazing Tholian outfit. And mm. I was, I just looked at it in Nas, like that must've taken about a thousand hours and about uh, $10,000. And I, I agree with you. I, I don't know if anyone is going to commit similar time and energy and dollars towards a Defont monster. You can win a costume contest dressed as a Tholian or do you remember that amazing Species 8472 costume? Hell yeah. Um, yeah. You can win a costume contest with those. I don't know that you could win as the Dauphin monster. Um, do you think you could win one uh, dressed as the punk from the bus in Star Trek IV? Only if you are that actor. Okay. Actually, yeah, that, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, so, Cam, I got, <laughs> I've got one for you. Uh, Enterprise here. You are in the midst of explaining kind of all of this Vulcan mythology. You have built it up. You, you get through, you get Archer, you know, Katra of Surak through this, you know, valley. You explain all the politics. You explain why the Vulcans seem a little bit more conniving in Enterprise era than they do in TOS or Next Gen era, and everything all makes sense. This is just the peak of the Vulcan arcs that we see in Enterprise. This is Kirshara. And the next week you followed up with Daedalus, in which um, <laughs> Archer's mentor has problems with transporting his dead son through outer space. What, what, Cam, what, what, what was this episode about? Uh, that's exactly right. He lost his son in a transporter experiment is trying to get him back. Um, I get what Enterprise is trying to do because this whole season is about delving into Trek mythology. So it's like, yeah, we did the Vulcans and earlier in the season we had the Augments. And then we have this one standalone where they're like, let's do the creator of the transporter. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but you are right. In terms of the richness of storytelling going on in the Kirshara arc versus what you get with this episode, it is, boy, like, it's not energy-wise hugely different because it's not like the Kirshara is like a really action-packed episode, for example. But 
it is just in terms of writing a uh, a big difference here, a real big difference. It's one of the most important episodes of Star Trek mythology, like Kirshara is. And then it, it look it has the benefit of being able to be built up through like a three episode arc. And it is very telling that I think there are only like four episodes from season four of Enterprise that were standalones. You know, I think you've got what, like Home, uh, Bound, These Are the Voyages, oh, Observer Effect, and mm. Daedalus. So there's five episodes. I think uh, Home, Observer Effect, you and I, you, you've convinced me Bound is actually kind of a fun episode, despite a little problematic episode. But it's just like if you have this opportunity to do like a kind of a one-off fun delve into the Star Trek universe, like I don't understand why they thought we'd care so much about, you know, one Dr. Emery Erickson, the inventor of the transporter, and just this really weird storyline about his dead son being stuck in a transporter beam. Doesn't it feel like, though, this episode was kind of buried? Like, I, I think they knew they had a dud here, don't you? I, I might be wrong with the timing of when the series was officially canceled, but I don't think Daedalus helped out with the ratings issue. And it could have been like, this is actually, this one actually did okay in the ratings, but after people watch the episode, maybe the ratings dropped off immediately afterwards. But I think this one was somehow connected to why the series was not picked up for a fifth season, which I think if they had done a fifth season, I I think it would have been their best one yet. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I think they were really on the right track. And Daedalus in an otherwise great season is the real only standout dud episode. So uh, that makes it all the more glaring that it's wedged up against a very great three-parter. I, I didn't realize you're such a fan of These Are the Voyages. <laughs> I forgot. Oh my God, how embarrassing. That is embarrassing. Okay, Cam, try to redeem yourself with your next pick here. Speaking of embarrassing, let's talk about a combo that's a real one-two punch. You have in Voyager, the Dark Frontier extended episode. One of the darkest episodes where you have um, a lot of like Holocaust imagery. Um, you have the um, seven seduction, um, with, you know, involving the Borg Queen and then the Janeway having to kind of struggle to bring seven back. Um, it's a very intense extended episode. And you follow it up with the disease where Harry Kim falls in love and breaks down on the bridge. <laughs> Well, Cam, I, I think they wanted to add some lightness into this series. So they had to make Harry cry the next episode. Watching love- an entire planet get assimilated was not enough for Harry. It was being in love that was going to do it. It's embarrassing. When you consider the stakes of Dark Frontier and the trauma those characters would experience going through that adventure. I mean, Janeway must have been exhausted after this whole story. And now she has Harry yelling at her on the bridge that he's in love immediately afterwards. Like, oh my God, he's lucky he's still on that ship. I would have jettisoned him. (laughs) She wishes she was the prodigy hologram at that point. Can you imagine if this show was like really strongly serialized and these two stories still fell back to back? It, well, I, I want to know how they kind of interconnected them, you know, just like, um, oh, it's a species assimilated by the Borg, because it was about like this generational ship, right? So yeah. maybe you could have argued that the uh, the Borg had chased the species off of their home planet, the Voyager crew is trying to protect them, and it was all about the Borg queen being in the background chasing after them while Harry can't help but think about being in love. Yeah. It's rough. Like we talked, you know, just a few minutes ago about the doctor story being kind of embarrassing coming after Blink of an Eye. Uh, This one is even more extreme, I think, in tonal uh, whiplash. Yeah, look, I I just I I guess Harry just never had any luck with the Delaney sisters. Like that is what my takeaway is from this. Or Molly the cow. Well, yeah, you know what? Uh, Good for Harry finding something better than Molly. What can I say? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, You know, I will jump over to Star Trek Discovery here. Uh, We had, I I think, probably both of our favorite episode of uh, season two, which was If Memory Serves, in which it's kind of like a a sequel to The Cage. Just watch that teaser, Cam. That is, you know, telegraphing to you what a sequel it is going to be. 
And then you followed up, you know, I just mentioned one episode with the, the Daedalus name drop right there. Why don't I do another with Project Daedalus? Um, Cam, this is not an episode I should like. This does all the stuff that I hate in storytelling where you kind of pluck a rando character and give them a backstory and then all of a sudden you're supposed to be invested in them uh, in that it doesn't feel earned. I don't really care. Like everything about this episode really like hit home for me when we follow kind of Arium. And I, I just wish they had given Arium a couple more moments in the preceding episodes, but this was just great to see. I still get frustrated thinking as to why Burnham couldn't really pull the trigger on saving the galaxy at that point by, you know, uh, ejecting Arium from the airlock. But uh, that's really my only complaint about this one. Yeah, I agree. I remember when we were watching this one, you know, in real time, really thinking this season had turned a corner. Like we were, oh my God, like Discovery season two started kind of rocky, but this felt like the show was actually building towards a really exciting finale. And yeah, it was a little frustrating. Arium wasn't used more because that was a character. I mean, the second that character walked on screen, you're like, who is she? Like, there's something really interesting with this visual so let's see more of that character. And it is a bummer we only get it in that final episode. But nonetheless, this was a pretty strong, at least, exit for that character. It's, it's just so weird that knowing what a fan favorite she was, like everybody was talking about Arium. Like, I just kind of wish they gave her the more of a build up to this send off that she got like eight episodes in. Like there, there were moments like leading up to this, right? And, and whereas like they had all these pre-programmed memories that she was viewing and saving and it was like, why didn't we see those memories unfold, you know, where she's playing like 3D chess or whatever in the mess hall? Like, why didn't we see that in those moments, you know, or where <laughs> I guess she's really into like sparring with Detmer or something? Like, how, how come we didn't get more gym sequences? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe in season four, we'll get more gym sequences. They just hadn't shot those, so they couldn't advertise them yet. <laughs> Remember the gym sequence last season in uh, Discovery where like, they... They literally had, like, katana swords in the gym, and, like, uh, Giorgio was threatening to, like, slice off uh, Burnham's, like, throat. Yes, I do. Uh, Discovery often feels like it, it. it's kind of that Zack Snyder school of filmmaking, where it's like, whatever the visual we want now, that's what we're going after. It doesn't matter about the logic, necessarily. It's all about the visual. And I think they wanted Giorgio, you know, using these weapons on screen, and it was like, the hell with how these weapons got here or why they're here. I, it, it's baffling to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got a, a really strong one, I think, and one we actually touched on last week, which is In the Pale Moonlight and His Way, which, um, you know, obviously we talked a lot about In the Pale Moonlight last week, so I won't delve into it too much, but it is a very dark character journey for Cisco, And we bounce back to a very light, uplifting character journey for Odo in His Way, which is that musical episode where Odo finally professes his love for Kira. We have Vic Fontaine helping him out. Odo's playing the piano. It feels like these two episodes should clash because tonally they're so different. But it's kind of like one shows a character at their lowest and one brings a character up to their highest point. And I think these two are really nice bookends, um, or I guess it's not really bookends because there's nothing in between, but they feel like they complement each other in a way, even though tonally they're so different. Well, don't you feel like just like Cisco needed a relief, you know, the audience needed a relief with like a real crowd pleaser like his way? Yeah, you know, you think of the ending of Pale Moonlight, where it's just Cisco saying, I have to live with this and, you know, ending the log. Well, his way ends with Odo and Kira kissing in the hallway on the promenade, like what a, you know, like fist pumping kind of ending. It's really great. I just, I, I, I literally remember back in the day on like the Star Trek websites, reading the episode description in which a um, holographic lounge singer is going to teach Hodo the ways of love. And I was just like, this episode is going to be a piece of garbage. Like I was not looking forward to it. It was a fantastic episode. I was like, okay, well, there we go. That was Vic Fontaine. We'll never see him again. I just like how he became like pretty much like a uh, main character uh, in the ensuing year and a half of the show. It's just crazy to me. But like, I, I just, I, I remember Iris Stephen Bear saying like, this is the episode that he realized like the studio executives were just no longer paying attention to what Deep Space Nine <laughs> is doing. 
And then he just felt like this freedom afterwards. He was just like, they don't care. Like, just like I can do whatever I want because they're letting me do this. And like, um, I don't know, that's just kind of amazing. Like maybe what that show represented to Iris Stephen Bear, you know, five and a half years into his journey as, you know, the, the head writer of the, the series. And it's also like so many people say, well, DS9 is the dark show. And that's something that's talked about in the documentary as well. But you look at an episode like His Way. There's very few Star Trek episodes that hit the high emotions better than DS9 either. Well, okay. Yeah, Deep Space Nine has that reputation, but I think, like, it is consistently, like, the funniest show. And, like, there's just so many, like, of these, like, Quark and, you know, Odo encounters, Julian and O'Brien encounters, you know, Jadzia and Worf stuff, like, Jake and Nog. It's just, it's, they... They have this ease with which that they can have, you know, like quips, make cutting remarks, and then still delve into kind of the the, the darker themes. Like I, I think, I, 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 it might be the darkest show. I still think I get more laughs, you know, per episode on Deep Space Nine than I do any other series. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, I think TNG. There's some almost unintentional laughs, and I don't mean that in a way of making fun of the show, but more just kind of laughing about how rigid the characters are in situations and their discomfort. I think there's some comedy there, but I think uh, DS9 is the best at actually staging comedy. Well, okay. So Cam, I've got one more. I'll let you do one more. And then maybe we want to do like a lightning round to wrap it up if there's any lingering ones here. But uh, like you kick off season four of Deep Space Nine with just probably the most explosive episode that they've ever done with Way of the Warrior. And then I remember following up the next week and it starts with the rainy house in Nolines. And I'm just like, (laughs) what? Like, and it's the visitor. And I remember being like, I don't know, I was nine or 10 and being absolutely gut punched by The Visitor. Like I could appreciate it at that time. My girlfriend, she just watched it a few weeks ago. She said she was bawling by the end of it. This is the first time she's ever watched Deep Space Nine. She could appreciate what they were doing. It's just amazing how they can go from just this incredible action-packed crowd pleaser, bring Worf back into the Star Trek fold into something just so deep and the the stakes seem smaller even though we are talking about the main character's life but just what they do with a a jake episode of all things like this is like the one like star trek episode that has probably uh touched me the most emotionally than any of the others that i've ever seen before and it's, it's amazing how you can follow up greatness with an even you know more exquisite episode in my opinion it reminds me of, um, in the wake of the first Avengers movie, they had an interview with now disgraced filmmaker uh, Joss Whedon, but they asked him how he would ever follow up the Avengers. And he said, well, who says I want to you know, go bigger necessarily? What if we will go smaller? Which would not be the case with Age of Ultron yeah. in any way, shape or form. I don't know what he was talking about. He was Sokovia. crazy to say that. <laughs> yeah, Sokovia. Um, but nonetheless, like uh, that's what they did here. That's what they did brilliantly was they take you know, Way of the Warrior, which is big. Like, that is an epic episode of Star Trek, or extended episode. Um, And then they went to a very small story about a father and son, and it works brilliantly. So uh, this is that, you know, that to the perfect degree. Like, it really worked out fantastically well. And it's, it's great that I think when people talk about their favorite episodes of DS9, both these episodes frequently get mentioned. And they're complete polar opposites, which I just, I I think that's the genius of Deep Space Nine right there. Yeah, I agree. So I will follow that up with an Enterprise one. Um, So I hope it's the one that uh, I'll save it for my lightning round, if not, but I hope it's the one that I'm thinking of, but go for it, sir. Okay. I think there's one that's super obvious and I maybe want to do that with lightning rounds because we've talked about it so much in the past. (laughs) Um, But the one I want to do is actually from season three. So like, so you've kicked off the Zindi War. You've had, you know, the premiere, which is called the Zindi. You've sucked people in. We are going into the expanse. We are going to explore things we've never seen before. And we are going to have an epic story. We follow that up with the anomaly, setting sort of the stage of the environment of what's out there. And then we follow up the anomaly with Extinction, the episode where Archer and crew get turned into aliens. This is a horrible horrible boring episode that completely kills the momentum of that setup for the zindi war and you know obviously it would recover but this was madness to throw this episode in here 
Cam, doesn't it feel as if all the actors were going back to their kind of like improv days in which, and I don't mean improv comedy, I just mean like those like kind of like improv acting lessons that they're told to do in, in theater school. And I'm just like, oh, this is just, this is just not comfortable to watch. Like I, I, I this is not good people. It's really awkward to watch. And you've just had like the setup of, you know, Trip has lost his sister. There's a lot of trauma going on. Archer is coming loose at the seams going into this war situation. And then this, it's just like, feels just tonally really all over the place. And I could forgive it if it was like a really good episode. Like say we got, you know, a standalone episode, like, you know, you have Twilight that season. Um, Twilight's a great episode, uh, but this is not. And so you can't even forgive the tonal shift. It's just like you have just wasted people's time for one hour. I think they they were still trying to figure out like how many episodes in a row could you do like focus solely on like Zindi stuff before maybe the audience would need a break. And I think they were playing around and I just don't think that they landed on anything that would really click with audiences or at least they do not execute it in a way but i just you look at the script it ain't strong sir no and they'd get there they figured it out the zindi war arc is, it was very successful but a little bumpy off the outset there yeah. um lightning round sir uh look you kind of mentioned uh twilight a second ago you follow that up with north star um i i kind of like north star it's yet another cowboy episode on star trek uh people might crap on it I'm just going to give them props for North Star. A couple others you want to mention, sir? Yeah, so I've got City on the Edge of Forever, which is like one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes, much less original series episodes. Um, and they follow it up with the season finale, Operation Annihilate. I have nothing against that episode. It's fine. But why would you not swap those two episodes? Talk about sending people out on a high if it's City on the Edge of Forever. We we were debating that a couple weeks ago. It's never made sense. Um, another one. Uh, look, you've got Basics, which is a great, great, you know, uh, follow-up to a great, great cliffhanger on Star Trek Voyager. You, you go and follow that up with Flashback, which you have the return of Sulu. That's a crowd pleaser. The whole, you know, like, cliff hallucination didn't really do it for me, but I'm never going to complain about seeing George Decay on screen. No, no. I mean, it's at least an ambitious episode they're following it up with. So I have no issues with that one whatsoever. Um, one that I do kind of struggle with is you have Year of Hell, which is one of the most epic Voyager two-parters. And it's followed by random thoughts. The ones where the aliens um, can read Bolana's violent thoughts. And I, I mean, boy, talk about going from just like an epic to kind of a middling nothing. Like it's a, you know, random thoughts isn't like the worst of the worst or anything, but... Boy, is it underwhelming compared to what came before. It falls flat. Um, look, Chain of Command Part 2, that is perhaps the darkest episode of Star Trek Next Generation, but you followed up with kind of some whimsy, some fun with Ship in a Bottle. I think they knew that they needed something to do after the heaviness that was the preceding episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've also got for DS9, Past Tense, which is a really strong two-parter, followed up by Life Support. <laughs> So you have this great, you know, social commentary going on and we cut to the death of Burial in the following episode. Uh, Which all listeners know that is the mascot of the show. That's definitely terrible, terrible. All right. Well, Cam, uh, look, I, I think we've uh, talked about how you follow up greatness. I, I like delving into what the future holds for Star Trek. Uh, I'm looking forward to August. Hopefully then I'll be vaccinated and I can uh, hold like a screening of Star Trek Lower Decks premiere somewhere in a uh, large auditorium packed with people. Definitely, definitely. And I just feel like we have to name check Terra Prime into these of the voyages because I think we would be, um, oh, <laughs> it, would okay. be criminal. It, it would be criminal for to us not to cite that one. And um, I was thinking of it because we did talk about it when we did an actual episode on those two episodes, but uh, pretty damning. Yeah, <laughs> so. it, it's great. It, it's uh, one of your favorite episodes of Enterprise followed up by your next favorite episode of Enterprise based on your earlier statements uh, today. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Let us know your favorite follow-up episodes or your least favorite, because there are still many examples left on the board we didn't touch on. So uh, we'd love to know yours. Okay, Tyler, what are we doing next time? 
Well, as I alluded to earlier, we are going to continue our discussion about the state of the Star Trek film franchise. And Cam, we're really going to get into, you know, how exactly did it get to this point where you're going seven years between the releases of movies, which is just kind of a, it's a very sad state of affairs for what seemed like such a re-energized franchise just one decade ago. Re-energized, huh? Exactly. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. This is going to be a fun conversation. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in Virtuoso, is my favorite episode of Voyager of all time. Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P, P as in Paper Moon, followed by Prodigal Daughter, O-R-T-O-N. Good Lord. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.